Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan. I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. And today we are going to be talking about Captain America Civil War. Uh, and our thematic parallel this week is that we had very divergent opinions about Civil War. <laughs> um, Gav saw the movie last week and really liked it. And I just saw it a couple days ago and I hated it. So this is going to be our first podcast where we fight. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be especially emotionally resonant because Morgan and I are both very big Captain America movie fans. We have spent, honestly, countless hours discussing especially The Winter Soldier. So yeah, I'm interested to find out what Morgan thinks, actually, because yeah. we've not talked about it yet very much. Yes, we've deliberately avoided discussing it too much. Um, and we did, when the last Captain America movie came out, really, it was months in months of of endless back and forth about that film. And so we were very excited about this movie um, and the trailers for like all of this year um, were dropping, getting a lot of attention. And then it finally came out this week. Um, so I had a sort of feeling that I was not going to like this movie. I just sort of had a sense. And then that was borne out by the experience of watching it, which was too bad. Um, but I'd like to kind of ask you a couple of questions here at the beginning, because I genuinely did like, don't understand why people like this movie. And I don't mean that in like a passive aggressive way. Like I went to this with our mutual friend, uh, Elizabeth, which Gav does her weekly fandom newsletter with, and we came out of the theater and we're both just, like genuinely sort of like, why is this getting good reviews? Like, why is this popular? Because it's been getting generally pretty good reviews and it seems to be pretty popular with fans. Um, we were we were just confused. Like we were baffled. We both didn't like it. So I have, I've prepared a couple of questions and then we can, we can move into our, our prepared topics for this podcast. Um, and like, I'm, I'm sincerely curious. <laughs> like, I'm not joking. Or, or this is not a trap. So also we should say at the beginning that we are assuming everyone who is listening to this has seen this film. Spoilers. This, it's, so many spoilers. It, yeah. We're going deep. I am like, oh, what you think Steve's arc was. Okay. I thought Steve's arc was borderline non-existent in this movie. Okay. So, <laughs> Okay, so then what did you think Bucky's arc was in this movie? Bucky's arc was also, like, not great. There's a point where, like, you and I definitely agree, which is for both of us, this is not the movie we wanted, and it's kind of something we were discussing months and months ago when they first announced this as Civil War. Fundamentally, this is not a satisfying conclusion to the Captain America trilogy. It doesn't really have a great deal of character development for Steve. It doesn't give enough screen time to Bucky's arc after the Winter Soldier. And I'm reasonably sure that's what the filmmakers were planning to do immediately after the second film. But then Marvel Studios was like, no, we want to do this ensemble kind of Civil War movie, which we're going to discuss later in the podcast, this whole kind of franchise building thing and how it's kind of messing with the individual arcs of the characters. I definitely enjoyed the film in its own terms. I enjoyed Bucky's scenes individually. But like, I agree that if I look at it from the perspective of storytelling, Stephen Bucky did not get enough of a character arc or development, whereas Tony got lots. And with right. Steve, there was a lot of action sequences. Bucky had a great deal of really interesting background acting for Sebastian Stan. There was a lot of emotional scenes, which I found really affecting, but it didn't conclude satisfyingly. So what a friend of mine pointed out to me was that Bucky makes no active decisions in the entire film. Yeah. Except to get put back into cryo which I thought was awful. Like he literally makes, he makes no choices and the film essentially punts on the process of him becoming a person again. And how much can he remember? I mean, he eventually says like, I can remember everything, but that whole like conversation and issue essentially is skipped over. Yeah. That feels like something that should, that was like, happening off screen and either wasn't included at all or was cut. I mean, it's something that they wanted to put in the film that wasn't the Civil War film, like the film that never existed. So I have a theory, which I think you agree with, that 
there was supposed to be a film that didn't happen. And then Robert Downey Jr. pushed his way into this movie. After the second Captain America movie, the Russos were giving all these interviews about what they wanted to do with the third film. And they talked about a specific comics arc that I no longer remember what they were talking about. But, like, it was not this. And then all of a sudden, like, later that year in 20, so this was 2014, there was all this news that Robert Downey Jr. was going to be in this movie. And there were, like, people were clearly, like, from either side of the Robert Downey Jr. and Marvel camp were clearly, like, leaking stuff to Variety about the negotiations to as, like, a jockeying thing. And then finally they agreed on it. Then they said, actually, we're going to do Civil War, which was not at all what the Russos had said before. Now, possibly that was just, like, a ruse because they had been negotiating with Downey Jr. the entire time. My suspicion is that... In fact, they were planning on doing a third Captain America movie that was actually a Captain America movie because there's also a lot of plot stuff that basically has been skipped over, right? So Hydra is just gone. They just skip, that's just done. The entire world apparently knows who Bucky is and that he's an evil assassin. Well, yeah, that makes sense because at the end, because of the, the leaks at the end of right, the last film. But if, but if, but they don't really talk about that. And if they bring all these leaks, then Tony should know about Howard. Yeah. And if, particularly because Steve knows about Howard. So if Steve knows about Howard, then Tony definitely should know. And so that doesn't make any sense. Also, like, content, like related to that, which doesn't really have to do with the leaks, but, like, the fact that his parents got killed in the middle of, like, nowhere and there was a security camera, and then also he shot the security camera even though it was supposed to look like an accident. Like, that do- that just 100% doesn't make any sense. I didn't think the security camera made sense either, and the only way I can legitimize that is that it's not a security camera, which wouldn't be in the middle of nowhere in 1991 anyway, rather that it's something that was pre-rigged so that he had visual proof of the kill. Right, but which, which seems like such a massive sort of, like, jump to justify something the movie doesn't explain. Yeah. Right? Like, that's, that could be true, but the movie doesn't... Like, but then, wh- like, why would he be shooting it? <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't... Like, n- no. Um, and But all of this stuff could have been explored in a movie that didn't exist. Right? Like, if there had been another film where they actually show like, all this stuff coming out and them actually tracking him down. They also sort of are like, no one can find him, it's impossible, and then they just show up at his apartment, I guess because of the information that Sharon gave them, but that also is quite unclear. But then if no one can possibly find him, how can she just be like, oh, by the way, I know where his apartment is. Like, there are all of these... No, I think the part where they find him, I actually... No, I think that was fine. The point is, the only people who were really strongly trying to find him before then uh, were Steve and Falcon. And then the reason why Bucky was tracked down is because he'd suddenly become public enemy number one. Everyone knew what his face looked like. They even say that in the film. And also you've suddenly got like this entire CIA subdivision looking for him. You've presumably got Wakandan Secret Service looking for him. And Bucky's probably getting flushed out. He's getting nervous because he knows everyone's looking for him. But if he's all over the news because of the leak as this terrifying assassin who's all who's all over the place, why would that would have been two years ago? Wouldn't everyone have been looking for him? Because they had like a million other Hydra things. And also because like, it was interrupted in the middle by um, Avengers, Sokovia. Right. But like, this is all stuff that isn't explained and doesn't fully make sense and should have been in an, like, there's just this sense of like a gap, right? And combine that with the fact that Steve and Bucky both don't actually get stories. And the story for Steve is supposed to be that everything he's doing, he's doing because of Bucky and this immense emotional attachment. And you don't actually see that in the film. Like, that's incredibly downplayed over the course of the movie. It's it's not the focus at all. They get very little screen time, even compared to Winter Soldier, where they obviously don't have that much screen time together because of the nature of the plot. The emotional register is significantly, like, lower. Um, and... But that's a problem for the for the story, right? Because if that's what it's all supposed to hinge on, that becomes an issue. 
particularly then when you compare it to Tony's stuff, which I think definitely is the most sort of fleshed out arc in the film. I thought that worked pretty well. But those two things need to be balanced, right? If they're not, then the whole movie feels out of whack. Even if it weren't a Captain America movie, that would be a problem. But the fact that it nominally is just makes it feel kind of farcical to me. Like, what, you know, this isn't actually an Iron Man movie. It's supposed to be a Captain America movie, and it clearly wasn't. But Oh, God, yeah. Like, I mean, but, I think, yeah, I'd kind of come to terms with that, like, before seeing the film. So I was sort of like, well... <laughs> but I also think, like, it wasn't just that it wasn't supposed to be about him. I also thought that it didn't work. There were so many things about the way it was set up with the characters and then the, like, politics of it that felt really off balance to me. So okay, so for me, I don't know if you're talking about like interpersonal politics or the politics of the Sokovia Accords, but the thing that really made me tragicomically laugh was that this film clearly is far better at doing the international politics stuff than Age of Ultron, which was just incredibly bad, even though it was, it was trying to be an international film and failing. I think this one was relatively successful, but it was bad and weird that the, um, the UN was depicted basically as the US Secretary of State. So even though the Sokovia Accords are introduced as a UN thing, the person who's enacting the Sokovia Accords is basically the Secretary of State from the US. There's no input from any other countries. And then Black Panther's thing is separate. There's no input from Nigeria. This was an event that took place in Nigeria. And we're only seeing it from the perspective of Wakanda. Which I get from, obviously, we want Black Panther in the movie. And I think that part was handled really well. But they kind of were simultaneously criticising the whole, like, American military-industrial complex situation of the entire franchise and portraying the US and its underwater Gitmo very negatively, which I thought was a good choice. But also, they just didn't... Where were the other countries? Like, what was going on? Why was the CIA operating out of, like, Vienna? Yeah. Well, it also just, like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Inside of a week, they've got this, like, 600-page document... And like 117 countries have agreed to it. Like, I don't that's think not... that's inside of a week. That was, no, that was something that he was imposing on the Avengers. It was already written up. He was notifying them before they were about to sign it. That wasn't written up really quickly. They were just looking for an excuse. And the excuse to win people over was the event in Nigeria. Uh, well, okay. It was sure. pre-written. Then all of your points remain, remain yeah. true. <laughs> um, but I was more referring to like the central conflict between Steve and Tony and the various other characters, right? Which is that Tony is pro-regulation and Steve doesn't want to be regulated or whatever word you want to use. Yeah. And the, I have no idea what the movie was trying to say about that. I don't know that if it had any, I don't know if it had anything to say because on a fundamental level, Tony is basically right. Right. Like you can't have all these people just randomly going around the world like blowing things up. Yeah, I agree. Like I mean, not, for, for me, I thought kind of the message of the film was basically that this is an unsolvable situation and that they're both wrong and they're both right because Tony's right and that it's absolutely ludicrous for these people to be independently operating. Like, I mean, that first scene I think was really well chosen because you just have them invading another country and having this pitched battle in the middle of a million civilians and they're, they're just able to do that. Like, that's not something that should be happening. So, of course, they need to be regulated in some way. But at the same time, Steve is right, because every single experience he's ever had with government officials and the military and superhumans has ended in corruption and disaster. Right. But at the ultimately, so like after Tony sort of seems right, Steve is basically 100% vindicated. And at the end of the movie, it's basically just like, shrug, he broke them out and now they're going to keep doing it, which you're supposed to read positively because you like all these people and you do think they're going to do the right thing. There's not any real interrogation of Steve doing anything wrong, right? Like what does he do wrong in this movie? I mean, you got me, <laughs> right? Like there's not, I mean, it... he's being selfish. Like that's the whole, then if the whole premise of his role in this movie is that instead of him trying to do stuff that's, the needs of the many outweigh the few or whatever. He's basically motivated by like wanting to save Bucky. Right. But then what is the, what is he like actually giving up 
So if he's trying to save Bucky, what's the cost to that? I mean, it's difficult to say because he already is in such a miserable place. There's nothing for him to surrender. Right, because, no, like, my is that, like, if it were Bucky or a hundred people, I'm not saying the film has to be that, like, binary, then that's an actual kind of, like, he's going to do a bad thing because he's being selfish. But there's no sense of, like, he's actually going to do this because he's so motivated by this. Like, the only thing is him not telling Tony about Howard. But that's so weirdly handled and out of nowhere, and you have no idea that he knows that. And we don't, like, people who know the comics know that Bucky did that, but people who don't know the comics have no idea that that's coming or what is going on with that. Like, Elizabeth had no clue that that was a thing. Um, That, like, you don't actually see him having to, like, make a difficult choice. Yeah. He just goes on the run again, and that's fine. Because you feel like, yes, right, good, like, you should go after your friend. And I think that's good dramatically, but he doesn't have to, like, there's no price he's paying. It's it's just kind of like, okay. From like, a story structure perspective of filling in the things that you need to do to, like, have a dramatic story and character arc. I think you're right, but that information didn't really alter my enjoyment of the film. And I think broadly that's the same for like most people, which isn't a defense of the film necessarily because that is a major flaw. But if I'm thinking of it as an Avengers film with an ensemble cast, that doesn't really bother me that much. I don't know. I mean, as a Captain America film, obviously it's hugely disappointing, but the knowledge that he's not given up something to reach the point he is at at the end of the film doesn't really change the way I was reacting to the film when I watched it. Yeah, I, I get that. That's fine. But I think that it's bad storytelling. And I think that it would have been so much better if they had actually had any kind of stakes. Yeah, like the film could have been improved by just removing 20 minutes of action scenes and replacing it with 10 minutes of Bucky Barnes' Winter Soldier recovery and 10 minutes really looking into the state of Steve's life, because I think the real problem with this as a third film in the series, and it's really a problem that we're going to have with all of the Avengers films from here on out, is that we're never going to have like a deep enough idea of what people's everyday life is. So like at the opening of this film, it just begins with the whole Avengers team off having an adventure, and then they go back to their life in what Tony describes as the compound, which I thought was a very good word choice. <laughs> um, yes. This is grim, but it kind of feels like you're only seeing what's happening in like 5-10% to 10% of their time. We'd have a better idea of what he was sacrificing if we actually knew what his life was like, but at the moment I have to just be like, well, he's going to be on the run and he's going to be an outlaw. And unfortunately all Marvel films are now in this hell state where they all exist as part of a continuum rather than a self-contained story, which is obviously a huge problem. So you see that being a problem with Tony too, right? And I actually think that Tony's characterization in this movie is probably by far the best um, of any of the characters, which is obviously kind of ironic since it's nominally a Captain America film. But I think he definitely has more screen time than Chris Evans. Um, But... One of the interesting things about that character is that if you look at him over the course of all of the films he's been in in the MCU, like, I would say a bunch of the stuff that has happened to him, they've just kind of thrown out. And I don't think that's the fault of this movie. Um, A lot of it has to do with Age of Ultron, which I think is awful. But, like, Iron Man 3 basically closes his arc, right? Like, he has all of this trauma and he essentially deals with it insofar as that's possible and it's very satisfying as a resolution but because of the demands of the franchise and the studio and the fact that Robert Downey Jr. wants to make money all the time um he just has to keep coming back over and over and over again uh which people enjoy watching Robert Downey Jr. play this character he's very good I think he is better in this film than he has been in a while Um, Like, I think he does a really good job, but at a certain point, I think there becomes a bit of a diminishing returns thing, right? Because, like, you're sort of playing out the same thing over and over and over again. In Iron Man 2, which I think is also a bad film, worse than this movie by a lot, there's, like, all of this stuff with Howard that he's dealing with on and on and on, and they sort of do the same thing here. That being said, I do think 
what he's going through and the sort of dilemma he's facing here is fairly well handled. I think it basically psychologically makes sense. Yeah, and is- also I feel like when you look at this as another Tony-led Avengers movie, then his arc works pretty well in the context of there being these three revenge stories. So you've got him having revenge on Bucky at the end of the movie. You have Black Panther, who we'll talk about later, who has by far the most coherent arc through the film, who's kind of pursuing revenge and then decides to gain it at the end. And then right at the beginning, foreshadowing all of that, you've got Brock Rumlow Crossbones, who literally like immolates himself in a quest for revenge. If this was a lone Avengers movie, then you would just have Captain America having some type of similar vengeance arc and they would all tie together. But because they're trying to glue that Avengers story with these this theme of revenge to the Steve and Bucky story. It's like, why? <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> yes. I still think it would work, but I think it would be much less egregious if those two things weren't trying to be glued together. Um, and I think that they ultimately wind up sort of prioritizing the personal stuff over the sort of political stuff they're trying to deal with, which is fine, like, these are movies about people, but I think what they're attempting to do is to make the political stuff and the personal stuff fuse together, which would be ideal, but ultimately it doesn't, like, they just kind of throw any ideas they were attempting to have out. Like, all of Tony's initial kind of, like, ideals about, oh, we should hold back, like, he kind of, in the end, he's just like, actually... I guess I should help Steve. Actually, I guess I should kill Bucky. And that's not, like, I understand why he feels that way. Like, he's confronted all of a sudden with this knowledge that his parents were actually murdered and this guy is right in front of him. But it comes quite out of nowhere. And the ideology is just pretty incoherent. Um, which I is just... find it relatively easy to accept with Tony, actually. Because he, post-Age of Ultron, is dealing with all this guilt. And he is trying to transfer responsibility onto someone else. And also, I mean, I agree that Tony's arc was basically tied up in Iron Man 3. And also, simultaneously, there's this inevitability that he's going to be in a bunch of other movies after that. But like in this one, you really see him transitioning from being the young Howard Stark role to the older Howard Stark role, where he's trying to become this statesman-like figure. He's trying to do the right thing. And he's like, I need to succumb to authority figures, basically. He's, instead of rebelling against the government and going his own way, he's trying to accept the government oversight that he rejects in all the earlier movies. And obviously this is also a bad idea, because the oversight he's accepting is the Secretary Ross character, who's the guy who basically tried to hunt down and kill the Hulk in the Hulk movies. No one's watched the Hulk movies, so that's kind of irrelevant. No, but um, <laughs> but like, he does have some backstory um, in the MCU, and this is clearly not a good person. And Tony's aligning himself with the wrong kind of authority figure. So I I found that a pretty coherent development after Age of Ultron. But I think, I mean, it is much more coherent than anything else going on in this movie, for sure, except Black Panther. But I think what would have been a sort of better thing is that, like, Tony is this character who's vested himself with all of this authority and in his movies goes around, like, killing people all the time. And it's just presented as this kind of like, well, he kills people, like, it's fine. And he finally is decided, like, okay, um, maybe I should not be doing this with the, like, latitude that I have been, which is an interesting development for the character. And then when he decides, or not even decides, but just, like, is moved to try to kill Bucky, that's basically him reneging on that. But the movie doesn't examine it, I don't think. Like, it's just kind of, it just kind of happens. Um, And... I think the viewer doesn't really see it as like, actually just because your parents died 25 years ago, obviously in tragic circumstances, you're not allowed to just murder people. Like, sorry. <laughs> like compared to everyone else in these movies, his backstory is like so much less tragic. Obviously your parents getting murdered is awful, but compared to like Natasha or Steve, or Bucky, or anyone else. Tony had a mean dad. Like, it's not really that bad. Actually. But that's why that's why I love that they introduced that completely bizarre flashback hologram scene at the beginning, oh because God. it was such a wonderful illustration of him 
not going to therapy because they've already yes. kind of had a joke about that. Like Iron Man 3 is kind of narrated from him telling this hugely traumatic period in his life to Bruce Banner, who's just like, I'm not a therapist. And then in this movie, he literally has this five minute scene where he's like, well, I have these really deep seated psychological problems, so I'm going to find a tech solution for that. And and air it in front of like a thousand teenagers. Like what? Yeah. So I think his parental issues, I am completely on board with because it is, he is, absolutely going overboard and he also is far more murdery and has less of a coherent moral code than maybe any of the other characters because there's characters like Black Widow and Hawkeye who have a fairly high kill count but they're explicitly characterized as semi-military figures and also as far more morally ambiguous whereas in the Iron Man movies they're so geared towards American militarism and kind of jokey comedy violence that once you try and make a serious film about that, you have to just accept that he's a supervillain, which is kind of the issue that the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has. Like, obviously, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is, you know, is very different. But like that has this problem where you've got these characters that you're positioning as, if not heroes, then at least supposedly the good guys who are just shooting everyone. <laughs> yeah. And in Tony's case, I think he's just so self-absorbed that he doesn't really consider what he's doing or it's his background as a weapons manufacturer and then for the last couple of movies he's been like well i'm this all-powerful avenger i need to you know protect everyone yeah and i think in sort of paradoxically in age of ultron which again i think is a like disaster of a film his him being a an almost um like antagonistic figure is more clear and this, I guess that's where we diverge, is that, like, I don't think they... And he's mostly right in this movie. Like, that's the thing, is that for the most part, what he's saying is correct, I Or think. it's not even that he's espousing that, really. There's relatively little of him versus Captain America having these ideological debates. It's more like the Secretary of State is the leader of that, and then Tony's kind of following in that. The only person who really follows the idea of the Sokovia Accords properly is Rhodey. Because he actually believes it. He trusts an authority. He's career military. He has had to put up with Tony's bullshit for 30 years. And he really (laughs) wants someone to rein it in. And even at the end, you get that great scene where he's, um, you know, he's still completely believing in it. And you can tell that Tony's already done an about face and he's a colossal hypocrite because that's literally what he always does. Um, Because he's tried so hard in this film to grow up and be a serious, mature, sensible politician. And instead he's just got worse. Yeah, but I don't know that the movie is like... The message of the movie is like, and now all these people are monsters, which like, like not they're monsters, but like they've basically decided to just like flout any kind of authority, which is bad. Um, yeah, I think the, the issue there is that's just basically unsolvable at this point. It is for virtually every superhero movie. You know, if you have Supergirl or something or old school Superman, then it's you've got someone who is relatively pure and you can continue to have an optimistic story. But in the context of basically any major franchise at the moment, unless there's someone like Spider-Man who really avoids killing people, like they're all really bad. And I found that particularly interesting with this one because the superheroes are all bad. The authority figures in the government are even worse. And then the story ends with half of them breaking out of jail. And I was just like, this has so many parallels with Suicide Squad. Because <laughs> the whole concept of Suicide Squad is that you've got this group of loose cannon supervillains who are some of them are like military and some of them are just have superpowers and they're like brought out of jail whenever they need to save the world. And I'm like, that's literally the premise of Infinity War because they're going to have to give like a presidential pardon or whatever to Ant-Man, you know, <laughs> be like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> and they've been put in like underwater Gitmo with no trial for really kind of bizarre reasons because they've broken the Sokovia Accords, but they've not committed a really serious crime because all they really did is they had a private self-contained punch-up in a Berlin airport car park. Right, which is, I think, emblematic of the problem here. (laughs) Right? Like, there's just not... There's not... Not a lot of thought has gone into anything, in my opinion. Like, because there's... Obviously, they they still have to be heroes in some way, but the, like, there's no nuance I mean, this this very much mirrors the content of the comics. Yeah. Virtually every comic. Like, unless you're reading Squirrel Girl, then either you're going to be reading a comic which 
purposefully acknowledges that heroes are extremely flawed and potentially killers, or you're reading one where they kind of just ignore that <laughs> or try and ignore parts of canon because it's made by multiple creative teams. Right, but I think they like try to acknowledge it instead of just ignoring it, but then didn't go anywhere with it. Like I would actually rather them have just done a different plot and just been like, yep, they're kind of fascists. It's fine. <laughs> As opposed to like attempting to do something and then been like, well, but Steve's actually good, so it's fine. He can do whatever he wants. Like, that's not really... I don't find that satisfying, but I'm also a very critical voice, as we know. <laughs> I think I'm really entertained by the, the fact that um, we're both representing the two archetypal reactions to a flawed film that a lot of people like. So I'm kind of the person who, when they see someone, I mean, I'm not usually like this, but in the context of this movie, I am that person who, if they see someone, something negative about the film on Twitter, they're like, my feelings are hurt. I really liked it. What's wrong with you? Stop poking holes in my fun. So I'm that person. I'm like, what are you doing? And then you dislike the film so much that you're finding everything wrong with it. Yeah. So there's like certain plot holes where I'm just like, that doesn't matter. It definitely doesn't matter. It's kind of like last week with Avatar. We both hated Avatar so much we could like happily tear that movie apart for two hours. And now it's like, no, I need balance. <laughs> <laughs> I actually watched this film twice. After I saw it for the first time, I was a bit like, I watched it as a midnight screening. I was slightly concerned that I was going to watch it again and find it more Age of Ultron and not enjoy it at all. And I actually enjoyed it more the second time. And there were a couple of inconsistencies I picked up on, and I was absolutely just like, shrug. <laughs> oh, Gavia. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so why don't we move on to talking about the individual characters, and I will explain my problems with them after you explain why you like them. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I feel like this is such a wide topic, because there was like a million of them. Start with Spider-Man, because I think that was something that pretty much everyone agreed was like an extremely strong part of the movie. Tom Holland is definitely perfect for this role he's incredibly good casting his you know he looks younger than either of the two previous spider-mans like he plausibly looks like he could be playing a 15 or 16 year old and he's really funny the dialogue is i'm guessing probably a lot funnier than what they're gonna have in the actual spider-man movie <laughs> although you know fingers crossed maybe it will be good and like his role in the film was great in conjunction with tony because he just highlights how shit Tony is. Tony Stark doesn't understand that you can't take a 15-year-old away from his family and engage him in war with a bunch of 40-year-old men in super, super suits. It's just like a perfect Tony Stark move. And you can tell kind of halfway through the battle that he kind of knows that he's done something wrong. Because when someone asks Peter's age, he like makes some joke about it. Like, oh, I've not carbon dated him. And it's like, you definitely know how old he is because you've been cyber stalking him for months, you weird creep. Uh, <laughs> which is also kind of what I was thinking when they had the introductory scene with Peter because like basically every aspect of Peter Parker filled me with joy even though I'm not a Peter Parker fan I'm much more of a Miles Morales person um, I greatly enjoyed his whole performance the one criticism I had was that I found it really totally weird when Tony went to Peter and Aunt May's house and then Aunt May basically seems like an idiot because she's not suspicious of this like middle-aged billionaire man showing up really suspiciously at her teenage kid's house and then they just like lock themselves in her in his room and i'm like this is skeevy this this seems weird like there's a weird power imbalance you don't actually know the details of this quote-unquote grant it's weird right but tony stark is flirting with her gav so yeah it's fine it was <laughs> yeah so that part when i was watching the cinema i was kind of like there's something weird here i can't put my finger on it like it just feels uncomfortable um <laughs> and it just yeah it makes her seem like an idiot yes and I also um, think the casting of her, that's not a Marvel thing. I think that was a Sony decision. But the casting really is weird. And they kind of hung a lampshade on it by having this joke like, oh, she's too hot to be an aunt. And I'm like, this role should be played by a 70-year-old woman. It's stupid. Yes, I love Maris Tomei, but it's, it's dumb. It's especially it's dumb really when dumb. you realize that she and Tony Stark are effectively the same age. And it's she could have had like a, <laughs> a franchise of Iron Man movies, you know. Yep, yep. Oh, dear. But yeah, overall... Fucking love Peter Parker. I thought he was adorable. Very fun introduction. Well, I <laughs> I have a different perspective on Spider-Man. <laughs> it will shock you to hear. Here's I actually can't believe this because I'm like, what's not to like? This is like totally reflective of our different points of view on this film. I thought the kid was great. 
He does not seem like he's from Queens. That apartment was a total joke. I mean, there are very nice apartments in Queens, but given what Peter Parker's backstory is supposed to be, I was like, this is on a soundstage. Like, this is preposterous. You compare that to, like, the Raimi movies when he's, like, from Flushing. I was like, no. But I thought the kid was great. I thought he was funny. The scene um, with Tony in the bedroom was, like, great. I think Robert Downey Jr. is at his best when he's acting with children. Yeah, he was so good should... in Iron Man 3 yes, with the they kids. Just put him with children all the time. Like... Which is very rare. <laughs> Most actors cannot do it. I know. And he was funny. He was quippy. He was great. There is literally no reason for him to be in this film. The only reason he is in this movie is to advertise the fact that there is another Spider-Man movie coming. And Oh, I'm like... not disagreeing with that. That's I know, 100% but... true. So the fact that he was enjoyable, I didn't care. I was like, this is so egregious. Why is this person on the screen? Like, he added nothing to the plot of the film. And it reminded me a little bit of um, in Days of Future Past when they go get Quicksilver to break Magneto out of prison. But the difference there is that that's actually serving a function in the story. They need someone to help them. He's really quick. He can do it. And X-Men is such nonsense that they can... Yeah, they can, like, introduce a character for three scenes and then be like, he's gone now. <laughs> like, it's fine. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, but, like, he is actually serving. He's doing something for the plot. He's advancing the plot. Spider-Man is in this movie. Like, li- there's literally no reason except as product placement. Like, that's that's essentially what he is, is product placement. A- he adds nothing except jokes. And, in fact, is this totally off for most of the rest of the movie. Not there are no other jokes. He doesn't really match the rest of it. And so I was just like, why? (laughs) And I was actually talking to a friend of mine last night who was talking to a like 14 year old boy who lives next door to her, who is like a comics fan. And, you know, like this like straight kid who like, you know, loves comics. And he was like, there are too many characters in this movie. And like, I didn't understand why Spider-Man was in it. (laughs) Like what's going on. And I was like, if that kid is thinking that, like what is going on? Like, this is too much. And I was just really aggravated, and um, I felt the same way to a lesser extent about Black Panther, so we can argue about that now, which I know is stupid. <laughs> oh, that's not going to end well. <laughs> you say what you thought about Black Panther. Firstly, about the too many characters thing, I obviously think that this film, and indeed almost every film with the exception of maybe Lord of the Rings, would be... Um, improved by trimming some of the cast. I would far prefer this to be an intimate movie with a core cast of four people. To me, this actually felt almost less overstuffed than Age of Ultron because there were several like main characters in Age of Ultron that didn't need to be there. Like The worst tie-in in any franchise I've ever seen is Thor's sojourn to the cave oh, pool, yeah. <laughs> where he just goes and has this really incoherent subplot about having a psychic vision in a lightning cave. In this film, I felt that even though there were loads and loads of characters, they, even based on minimal personal screen time for each of them, they gave a pretty good reason for almost all of them to be involved in the fight. Their personal choice made sense to me. So, like, there's a couple of exceptions where, like, so, for example, Wanda, Scarlet Witch, they kind of had to do the best of a bad job there because her role in Age of Ultron was really difficult to follow. She doesn't really make sense as a character in the franchise. I liked her role in this, but there's only so much you can do when you've been given a character who reverses their own entire life and decision in the first film and then doesn't still doesn't have like a personality. Because mostly she's kind of reactions to stuff rather than a personality. But like broadly, I think they did a really good job of giving you really good individual character moments for all of them. And maybe that's more of like a comic book thing. That's not something I would ordinarily comment about in a film. But anyway, Black Panther. Um, do you want to go first or should I go first? Well, I, I, why don't I go first? I'll give <laughs> you the advantage. I like Black Panther a lot. Chadwick Boseman is great. At this point, I don't know if I could say I'm really looking forward to any of the Marvel movies because I just, I just don't care. Um, but... I feel like that's the one that's most likely to be not terrible. Like Ryan Coogler, as we've talked about, is great. Um, And I think he had a very coherent arc. I like the stuff with him and Natasha a lot at the beginning of the movie when they had a couple scenes. I was just like, why isn't this a Black Widow and Black Panther movie? Like, that would be so much more enjoyable than what I'm watching right now. Um, But again, like, I felt that the reason he was in this movie was not because he was necessary to the plot, but because 
they were advertising his film. And they did a much better job, obviously, of integrating him into the story than with Spider-Man, who was just, like, tacked on. Like, he obviously is involved in the bombing and then is chasing after Bucky. Um, But I was thinking about it, and I was like, okay, so if you removed his plot from the story and left the bombing in, which obviously was going to, like, they're signing the accords of the bombings happening anyway. His father is just kind of like a casualty of that. Um, and like the reason that they're involved is because like there happened to be some Wakandans in Nigeria and then like Nigeria basically gets forgotten as we were discussing, like nothing changes in the film. Yeah. I mean, basically the, the main contribution, like kind of in terms of the story is that at the end, he's the one who's going to be bringing Zemo to justice, which presumably means that Bucky is being cleared of those crimes. So he's right. still open to being cleared of all of his crimes because he's no longer under Hydra control. So like from the perspective of Bucky's story, he does have no influence, but the rest of it is just kind of, it's more, they have just put him in the movie to cross-promote his own franchise. I mean, obviously it didn't bother me. Like, you know, it didn't. <laughs> um, I know. I think he does actively improve the film. His presence makes the film better, even if it doesn't necessarily have a great deal of influence on the central Civil War story. Yeah, I mean, like, I would agree with that, but I think that it improves it because the rest of the film is so bad. <laughs> like, seriously. And I think that the fact that he's there is like part of the fundamental problem with the narrative, right? Like they didn't, so like with Winter Soldier, Falcon is in that movie. Like he's, he's the new addition in terms of like, not the bad guys. And he's in there because like, he's a character in the Captain America comics. This is my assumption. And he makes sense to add because he's like Steve's friend. And he contributes to the plot of the film. He's helpful to them. He's a great character. Anthony Mackie's great. He's not getting his own franchise at this stage. And it's very organic. And in this movie, like both Black Panther and Spider-Man are added, not for that reason, but because someone higher up at Marvel clearly was like, well, those movies are coming out. So, you got to get those characters in somehow. And I guess the screenwriters are like, okay, like we'll figure it out. And the other characters too, even if they don't have their own franchises, like the only reason that Vision and Wanda and Clint and like Scott Lang, oh my God, God. like the only reason they're in this movie is because they have to be in this movie, not because the story dictates it. Right. Like that big fight at the parking lot at the end is in the movie because it has to be in the movie, not because the story requires it. Like it goes on for so long. It's not quite as egregious as the big Hulk Iron Man fight in age of Ultron, but it reminded me of that a little bit. Like it, it's just like all these people fighting and being like, why are we fighting each other? We're not really sure. And like it, it's there because these films now require big fights. I don't find that satisfying as a viewer anymore because or or I didn't ever really because there's no narrative momentum the genius thing I think about the Avengers is that we didn't somehow manage to actually find a way to make all of those characters necessary to that story it's a unbelievable achievement that that happened and i think the only reason it was possible was that there hadn't been that many films before that point yeah and, and also that... there were only functionally there were only four avengers at that point yes exactly and then they like tacked on um the hulk and black widow and now it's just like so much that it has completely dwarfed any desire to tell a story and like i, I totally get finding parts of that enjoyable like, I, that's, like, that's fine. But I, like, I just find it so emotionally deadened and narratively, like, diffuse that I, it's boring to me. Like, I literally, I just sat there the whole time and was like, I don't care about any of this. Like, it's, you know, okay, they're, they're fighting now for some reason. Like, sure. I think it's, it's just a pity that you don't really like the Netflix series so much. Well, this is the thing is, like, I like action movies. Like, I really enjoy them when they're done well. But, and I like a number of the earlier Marvel films a lot. But it's gotten to the point where, they, like, they've just given up. 
I do actually agree with that. Like, I broadly, I really don't find final battle scenes interesting. So I was kind of glad that the final battle scene in this movie, the fight between Steve and Tony, was kind of intercut with that scene with Zemo and Black Panther, which I really enjoyed. I also really enjoyed the car park fight, actually, because it had all of these, like, cool little character moments. And even the second time I watched it, I liked it. But broadly, yeah. I rewatched Iron Man 3 recently. That film is great. It's got a really good script. It's got some like weird moral situation because like, like all the Iron Man films, because it doesn't acknowledge that Iron Man just kills people all the time. <laughs> um, yes. But like the final battle scene in that is just bad. Like it's there's like a couple of moments where people are talking to each other and it's good, and every other aspect of it is just not good. And I think that's partly because Marvel Studios doesn't actually hire action directors very often. Yeah, it would be amazing if they could find some way. <laughs> this is like not possible, but if they could either find some way to find a collaborative team where it's like the Russo brothers, but one of the brothers is like some kind of action directing genius and the other one is fine at all the other stuff, or they could find the Holy Grail, which is an action filmmaker who can do the kind of more complex emotional stuff. I mean, I guess that's probably the Fast and Furious people. But those films, plot-wise, are not complex. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah, there's there that that filmmaker was Joss Whedon, and then Joss Whedon broke. Yeah. So now there's yeah. no one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think a good comparison to this, right, would be the Force Awakens. And I also like this whole Star Wars machine is depressing to me too. I hope a bunch of those movies are good, but the fact that they're doing this Han Solo movie, just like shoot me in the face. Like, I but there is not a ton of action in that movie. And the action sequences are very exciting. Um, JJ. But also is like good the previous Star Wars films are not tremendously action focused. Right. Like they're um, more about like world building and fantasy. Yes. But like, they are really smart about, there are some action sequences. I think J.J. Abrams said in an interview that he was really sick of the model of doing, like, every 15 minutes something has to explode, people have to punch each other, which is basically the model now. And, like, he was just like, I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> like, I'm done. But, like, they hold off on having anything with lightsabers until, like, the last 10 minutes of the movie, which is so smart, right? Because that's what everyone gets excited about. And in the theater, when that happened like there was so much energy in the room and you don't like obviously everyone was in the tank for that movie anyway like it could have been terrible and everyone would have been like it's amazing like but it actually was really good and they knew that they didn't have to just like throw in a bunch of crap to make it good like they actually made a good film and clearly were interested in making a good film and i feel like at this point marvel like, they know that whatever they do, they're going to make a gazillion dollars. And so their movies basically exist to advertise their other movies. And they just don't care. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very much playing like into the kind matter. of... It's very much playing into the formula aspect, which is the same problem they have with, like, their general diversity issues, which have been very widely discussed. They follow this structure of usually there's some kind of MacGuffin, like the fucking Infinity Gems. <laughs> and there you've got your, like, male lead and you've got your female sidekick and what have you. And... You know, one of those things is the action sequences. And there are a few of these films that are good at it and others that are less good. Like for me, I enjoyed the car park scene. I enjoyed the scene at the end with Tony and Steve. From like a filmmaking perspective, we've already talked about how in the hand-to-hand combat scenes, they really are not good at shooting those. But I had to kind of be like, got to tolerate it. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how Ryan Coogler shoots Black Panther because he's obviously incredible. And Black Panther if it does include any of these kind of big explosion scenes, I imagine it will be more interesting (laughs) because it will be set somewhere more interesting than a German car park. We can only hope. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I got to say the one half of a second at the end of the film where they saw the Black Panther statue, I was like, I've literally physically died. (laughs) I think that might have more to do with you. Oh no, it's 100% (laughs) me. That is not, that is not anything on them. That is definitely all me. But, um, yeah, loved every instant of Black Panther in this movie. <laughs> I think, oh god, Morgan, you're gonna die at my naivety here, but, um, so I hadn't, like, consciously thought about how likely it was 
for Black Panther's father to die, right? I mean, yeah. obviously he's in the kind of role where it's fairly clear that he's going to die, but, yes. <laughs> but in that introduction, it's like fairly obvious because he's like a nice dad and all fathers have to die in superhero movies anyway. Um, and he like in- touches his face. Yeah. Meaningfully. But like that scene yes. where he touches his face, I was like so emotional. I was like, this is so nice. Like, look, they're like a wonderful dad. They're so affectionate with each other. I was genuinely shocked when he died. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was like, possibly the most predictable move in the entire film as soon as it happened i was i was shocked and then 10 seconds later i was like i am an idiot <laughs> oh my god yes but yeah a really wonderful scene with chala and chaka uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm very excited to uh have a lot of emotions when his solo movie comes out yes oh my god i've seen so many people in love with his bodyguard yes and I've also seen people who were kind of tweeting about when that character like came on screen. There were people like yelling in the cinema, and she had like I mean, she's two lines. On screen for like yeah, she's on screen for like three seconds. Yeah. So people people want that. Hopefully they'll, they'll give it to them. But uh, I think we have one more topic to discuss, which is perhaps the most annoying thing about this movie that I think we <laughs> actually agree on. Yeah. Something, which is the raging no homo in this film. Which is, like, staggering. It's unbelievable. And I mean, I, I expect some no homo from these films. It's not, it's not shocking. But this was really remarkable. Um, and I want to talk about this in the context of Winter Soldier also, but why don't we start with what's actually in this movie and how they marketed it, which I think is super, super interesting. Um, so... They released a trailer a few months ago. There have been a couple of trailers. Um, but they released this trailer with all of these scenes and moments between Steve and Bucky and had, like, emotional music playing under it that was, like, very gay. And everyone got really excited about it, understandably, on the internet. And then I watched the film and realized that every single moment between Steve and Bucky, with one exception, was in that trailer. I don't think I'm exaggerating. And I was like, whoa, that was cold. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Like, they, and in fact, in that trailer, there's a, like, moment where they're, like, getting their weapons ready and, like, gaze meaningfully each other. And the meaningful gaze was cut from the movie. (laughs) I was like, "Hmm." oh my god, you're right, they did. I hadn't noticed that. Uh And the first two movies in this trilogy are, like, they're pretty gay. There's a lot of gay stuff going on. And this movie is not like that. Like, it's just not. It's different. I mean, when I when I went to see this at the midnight screening, I, I went with several friends. It was a triple bill. And my friend Grace, who is not, like, into fandom or fan fiction, after watching all three in a row, she was, like, so mad, right? <laughs> because yeah. she literally was like, I feel like I've been cheated out of the third act of a love story. And, like, obviously Morgan and I, neither of us are genuinely under the impression that they were going to have Stephen Bucky as a romance but like structurally and emotionally that is how the trilogy is set up the thing that is very frustrating about this movie is not just that Bucky doesn't get that kind of redemption recovery arc but also that it kind of leaves hanging um, this aspect of their friendship and it kind of cuts it off at the end they were made all these kind of jokes in the promotional materials um, which is like fairly common for this kind of movie how it's like oh it's a love story but they're not actually gay And they kind of talk about how it's really closely hinging on the relationship between these two characters because they're aware that there's a very vocal portion of this film's fan base um, who are like really invested either like in a fanfic sense or just in terms of their friendship. They're really invested in the Steve Bucky relationship. And they did really heavily hammer home the kind of don't worry, they're straight angle for this movie, which is obviously, duh, you're not actually going to object to Marvel Studios saying that they're canonically straight characters are straight but yeah like the stuff with sharon who oh my god it's really because like sharon is not really she doesn't really have like a character she's in like three scenes in winter soldier yeah because like i mean because i like the actress like i really like her um in the tv show revenge so it's not something that i think is wrong with her performance but her role in the movie is so much less dynamic than peggy carter like peggy carter has more of an influence like emotionally on Steve in this film than Sharon does because there's that speech where Sharon quotes Peggy's advice and that's the thing that really cements Steve Rogers' decision to go against the Sokovia Accords, right? 
So Peggy's still this tremendous figure in his life and always will be. And that romance worked really well, even though they like kissed once and it was completely cut short in his youth. It still works for this Winter Soldier. It's this really like beautiful, mournful love story. And then in this film, there's like a couple of scenes between Steve and Sharon. The two romantic ones are obviously the kiss, which is just out of nowhere and doesn't make sense. And then there's the scene where they're kind of having like a really small conversation about her new job like with the CIA and they're standing outside her hotel and there's like a moment where it almost seems like he's going to go up with her and then he's interrupted. And the first time I watched that movie, I was like, that scene was actually pretty good because it was a nice little piece of subtle performance. And if they just left it there, it would have been fine. And then they could have picked it up more in the next film. Um, but the second time I watched it, I was like, wait a minute. This is this is chronologically directly after Peggy's funeral. Her aunt's just died and she's given a eulogy and he's just carried the coffin of the love of his life. And then they're like, oh, let's pick up. Like, what? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> it's the... just so, it's so tacked on. It really is quite a disservice to one of the very few female roles in this movie because there are like really few female characters compared to this huge stable of male characters who are there because they're in other films so it's not even necessarily the fault of this film it's because that's what they have to work with but sharon carter fundamentally is not very interesting no she doesn't really have a personality it's quite and also the fact that she's a member of the cia is a bit like the cia are they're not the good guys (laughs) that's too complicated yeah that's a bit that's a bit that's a bit too uh, big yeah um yeah, I mean, literally the only reason that that kiss is in there is to be like, in case you forgot, he's he's heterosexual. Like, we just want to make that clear for everyone. He's straight. He's a straight man. And then they cut to, like, Bucky and Sam in the car being like, yeah, man, good job. Like, we're broing it out over here. I was like, what? <laughs> what? No. Like, it was just so bizarre. And then the, like, one moment that Steve and Bucky get to actually, like, speak to each other that where they're like yeah remember back in brooklyn like we used to make out with girls <laughs> what like no stop now like it was just totally egregious it's kind of hilarious to me as well because i absolutely understand why as a storyteller or as a fan you might be pissed off by fans of like slash fanfic and shippers like either just because you're homophobic or because you're like you're misinterpreting these characters it's like a non-sexual friendship so i get that but it's just so weird and defensive to like install that in the film itself right because i can understand thinking that but you've actively made your film worse by like putting well here's stuff in it like it's it's, here's my theory and it's not it's not putting anyone off the films like i don't think there's anyone who is avoiding watching Captain America 3 because they're like, the first two were too gay. I wish there was an awkward scene where he kisses a girl for 10 seconds. Well, my theory, this is my conspiracy theory, is legitimately that they got a memo that was like, tone the gay stuff down. Because the screenwriters and the directors seem totally chill about it. Like, they don't seem to care. And they literally put out a trailer that was like, look at it, like, look how emotional it is, and then the movie is not like that at all. And the first two films were written by the same guys, and then this is directed by the same people who made the last one, and it's very emotionally nuanced and very emotionally intense, and then all of a sudden, that's gone. They killed it. Obviously, I have no idea. Maybe I'm just paranoid. But given what we have seen in the past from this studio, it seems plausible. Or like studios in general. There are certain times when there are things that kind of float above the rest of the film and you can tell that it's maybe not come organically from the creative process. In most of this movie, I think, safe to say that's the case. But like the Russos just gave an interview where they're talking about how like they're definitely going to be LGBT characters in the future in Marvel films. And like, it's really important. Um, I have the quote here. It says, I think the chances are strong. I mean, it's incumbent upon us as storytellers who are making mass appeal movies to make mass appeal movies and to diversify as much as possible. It's sad in the way that Hollywood lags behind other industries so significantly. One, because you think it would be a, a progressive industry and two, it's such a visible industry. So I think it's important that on all fronts, we keep pushing for diversification because then the storytelling becomes more interesting, more rich and more truthful. And I read that and I was just like, this is such bullshit. Like what? Like, look at the movie you just made. And again, like I kind of suspect this is not their fault, but either way, like 
it's really wild considering the number of side characters there are now. Yes. Yes. Um, in the kind of broader MCU, it's kind of got to the point now where the TV shows and the movies are far less integrated than they were before. Um, but in the context of the TV shows, you've got Jessica Jones, where there are several queer female characters, but like there's been a lot of criticism over their depiction. Some people are like, this is too negative. I quite liked most of those characters, and I was also like, everyone in this whole show is awful. Uh, so I was like I didn't really have a personal problem with that but I understand the criticism behind not enjoying the fact that the only lesbians in the MCU are evil or dead Um, and then in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. they have this one character who is like so tokenistic it's actually a joke they have a cast of about 50 people in that show and they have one character who he's a gay guy it's mentioned like twice in a way that's slightly clunky it's fine, it's not bad, but it's just you've definitely just given him this random offhand character trait because you felt that it was time to add one gay person to your cast of thousands. Yeah. Um, in the MCU, you have so many characters now. Think of how you could have livened up Ant-Man, you know? Well, uh, and in the case of this movie, what's so crazy making about it is that the fact that they, for whatever reason, shied away from it so dramatically made the movie worse. I think by a lot. Because... Steve's whole motivation is supposed to be that he's essentially irrationally driven by this desire to protect Bucky, which makes sense. But they don't really show them interacting that much. The intensity of the emotion is way cut down from Winter Soldier. And so the... Like, it doesn't make as much sense as what Tony is going through, which, as we were saying, basically is logical and you can follow and it, it and be like, yeah, okay. I mean, I'd be interested to know to what extent that was kind of an editing thing or, I mean, presumably it was like a rewriting thing a great deal because this is a film that was rewritten a lot. But um, because so much of the promotional material is focused on Stephen Bucky's relationship. And that's obviously partly because they know that's what people were invested in from the first film. And it's the strongest through line because people are very into the Winter Soldier. Sebastian Stan got really good reviews. In interviews you see with the directors and writers from a few months ago, they really are emphasizing the Steve Bucky relationship to an extent that is just like not realistic in the context of the film. Well, the fact that they cut that trailer with all of the moments from the movie suggests to me that that's what was in the movie. Like, I'm sure they cut stuff about from all the plot lines, but I was thinking yesterday about the end of Winter Soldier, and it made me, like, even more annoyed at this movie than I had been, which was impressive. Um, Because, like, cinema is, as an art form, generally speaking, is about characters making active choices. And that's why the Bucky stuff in this movie is so sort of frustrating and ineffectual, is like, he doesn't really get to make active choices. But the end of Winter Soldier, like, the stuff with them on the helicarrier, whatever it's called, um... It's such an elegant um, depiction of how action films can use that to great effect, right? So Steve has this dilemma. He has to either choose saving the lives of millions of people or Bucky. And he chooses saving the lives of millions of people. He has to fight Bucky and he really doesn't like it and does his best not to kill him, which he doesn't. But he prioritizes being a good person. And then once he's made that choice he decides that he's not going to fight Bucky anymore. And he kind of gives up his identity as Captain America, which is so fundamental to who he is. And basically he says like, I care more about you remembering me than living and allows Bucky to make the choice to kill him or not. And Bucky has been in a position the entire movie and for like 70 years of not being able to make any of his own choices. And then Bucky chooses not to kill him and then to save his life, which is so powerful and emotional. And there's that moment that was on Tumblr five million times of him like staring down at him and it's so intense and so powerful this film there's no like nobody makes choices right like bucky kind of is just there and then steve i guess tries to save him from tony killing him but that sort of like really delicate play of like there are these intense emotions and we have to make these really intense choices about who to sacrifice and like what we're sacrificing is gone. And I think it's gone because the relationship has been like denuded of all of its emotional intensity. And 
I don't know why they made that decision. I have my thoughts about it, but like, who knows? But it's possible to make it work. They did it once and it was great. And they chose not to do it this time. And it's just, it's just depressing to me because these are the movies that we have that are sort of our monoculture now. And there's not much monoculture left. Like the culture is pretty fractured and, but this is what we have. These are the movies everybody goes to and they could be making good stuff and they aren't. And I just think it's sad. Like they clearly don't care. I, it was just really demoralizing to me. I kind of thought about rewatching that movie and then was like, this is just going to depress me. Like, this is not the right time to do this. Like, no, no. Um, and it is like, I, I get people enjoying it and I'm not trying to say like, you shouldn't have liked it if you liked it, even though I've spent this entire hour plus being like, here are all the reasons why this movie was terrible. But compared to that last movie, they are capable of making good films yeah i mean i think we're both in agreement that this is the weakest of the three but obviously as listeners will know (laughs) i like this one far more than morgan did um so i think after that protracted civil war we are possibly (laughs) (laughs) we are possibly back where we started if not i think i still basically have positive feelings towards this film even though i admit that it's flawed and it's my least favorite of the three captain america movies and I do admit that many of Morgan's criticisms are correct, even though if I, I generally have a policy about plot holes, which is that they don't always matter very much, uh, especially in this kind of movie. Whereas I think Morgan, if possible, actually dislikes the film even more than she did at the beginning of recording. But I'm still very firm in my general enjoyment of this film. I think I am going to spend a lot of time analysing where all the characters have gone after this and kind of the different things they did in this movie. Um, Black Panther was perfect for me. I was very happy to see him on screen next week, kind of to heal our feud from this week's episode. We are going to be talking about a film that both of us, I think, enjoy and find interesting for very similar reasons, which is Christopher Nolan's Inception, which I was absolutely obsessed with in 2010 when it came out. And I'm very excited to revisit now. So yeah, if you're interested in Inception, definitely come back next Monday for our next episode. Um, if you're listening for the first time this week, you can check our back catalogue on overinvestedpodcast.com. We've already had like a couple of superhero type episodes. We discussed Batman v Superman, which we thought was nightmarishly bad. <laughs> and we've also yes. done a whole episode dedicated to um, Black Panther. And otherwise, you can find us on Twitter at overinvestedpod and Tumblr overinvestedpodcast. Mm-hmm. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate us on iTunes or give us a review because that's how we can get onto the podcast chart and find more audiences. So until next week, thank you and goodbye. Bye.